we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where we engage in a love and justice-infused dialogue and walk the line on tough issues. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with my dear friend and colleague and co-host, Dr. Cornell West. And we've got a quick programming update for you. We're excited to announce that The Tightrope has partnered with The Real News Network for a limited time. Over the next few months, The Real News Network will be airing each episode of The Tightrope on their quite popular YouTube channel. We'll still be posting clips on our usual channel at the youtube.com backslash the tightrope pod. But during this limited collaboration and partnership, you can view the full episodes at youtube.com backslash the real news. Now, today on the tightrope, we have invited Maximilian Alvarez, the new editor in chief of the real news to join us in a brief discussion about our new partnership and why it's important for independent news. I'm just gonna say this part very slowly. Uh, independent news programs to support one another in this era of post-truth and seemingly alternative facts, otherwise known as lies. Anyway, Max, welcome to the tightrope. How are you doing? Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with both of you, and I could not be more excited about this collaboration. We love everything about the tightrope and everything that y'all are doing here. So thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. How are you doing, Cornell? Welcome to the tightrope for you, too. Uh, it's always been always a blessing to be on that tightrope. I might be doing a little moonwalk on that tightrope, but I'm what? still in motion. I'm moving. Sister Trisha, she's just orchestrating and conducting it. It's just on the moving, Brother Maximilian. Man, what a blessing to get a chance to see you again. You know, we know you've got a reputation as being a uh, magnificent scholar, literary critic, wrestling with Dostoevsky at the deepest level. And once you get down with Dostoevsky, you you a deep sea diver. It's hard to come back. I'm glad you made it back with a smile, brother. Well, I want to hear. Real news, blessed to have you. And we blessed to be with real news and you, my brother. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So why don't we start with this Dostoevsky turn? Because uh, we started to talk about this before we out on the air. We said, let's hold it because we want to know <laughs> and we want to share it with everybody. Real news and tightrope folk. So tell us what your field of interest was and how you ended up being uh, in, you know, enamored of Dostoevsky and, and why we, we just this would be a wonderful place to start, Max. Man, my my freshman self would be, uh, you know, would probably faint if he knew that I would be having this conversation with y'all years later. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 something that I brought up to y'all before we started recording, because, you know, I love how much, um, you know, Dr. West and Dr. Rose, you bring up uh, literary figures. And I know that Dostoevsky has a special place in Dr. West's heart. And so every time I hear him mention Dostoevsky, you know, it really it really kind of means something personal to me. Because I grew up, you know, a, a conservative Catholic Mexican kid in Southern California. You know, I was raised in a very conservative part of Southern California, kind of the heart of the Reagan revolution. 
And I came to college, you know, with uh, a lot of ideas about how the world worked and how people worked. And I was uh, originally intending to be a uh, biology major and to become a medical doctor. Then one, uh, one fateful winter, I picked up the biggest book that I could find, which was The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And it, it frankly changed my life. I, I ended up, after taking a whole course on that with um, my beloved and departed mentor, Professor Norman Ingham at the University of Chicago, he took me under his wing. He showed me that there was a lot more to discussing literature and literature had a lot more to teach me than I'd previously thought. And so I ended up switching my major to Russian, to Slavic languages and literatures with a focus on Russian. I would go on to get my master's in Russian literature. And, you know, I think that as a human being, more than anything, Dostoevsky opened my world and my worldview. You know, he is so attentive to the complex psychologies and inner emotional um, worlds of the different characters that he creates. And he puts them in conversation with each other in such a beautiful literary laboratory that I honestly think it was that experience of reading Dostoevsky and then other authors that helped me break out of my conservative worldview because it allowed me to see the world outside of my own head and imagine the struggles and interior lives of other people. And, you know, that's a, that's a gift that Dostoevsky gave me that I'll forever be grateful for. Mm. Oh, it resonates deeply in my own soul though, brother. The most profound indictment of Christian faith written by a Christian himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, are, you a, are you an Alyosha? Are you an Ivan? Are you a Dimitri? I think that's always brother, the Brother, I am with the holy fools. <laughs> your steam up, your steam. Now, of course, they they were sinners, they were gangsters early on, mm -hmm. but they underwent fundamental transformation in that way. But there, yeah, there's, there's nothing like those. I remember when I first ran a Snoop Dogg, and he told me, he said, you know, brother, he said the world is divided between those who love the dramatics and those and those who love the temptations. I know you love the dramatics, and I do too. So we're on the same side. I say, Snoop, you're absolutely right. And I say the world is divided between those whose lives have been changed by Dostoevsky and those who have not yet had a chance mm. to engage him because he cuts that deep. Now, you know, I'm a checkoff man, but that's another discussion. <laughs> checkoff is there waiting after you go through the brook of fire and Dostoevsky is in so many ways that brook of fire that we all go through. Mm. That's right. Mm. More than anything, Dostoevsky will always be my first great literary love but as much as you're a Chekhov man, I'm a Gogol man. I wrote Ooh, both. Ooh, you go Nikolai, Nikolai. Ooh. Nikolai Gogol, man. Nikolai Gogol himself, dead souls. No, that's, uh, we, we're not that far apart. Gogol and Chekhov, because <laughs> they're comic writers. And the way mm -hmm. that Dostoevsky's not a comic writer, you know, mm. he's a tragic writer. Yeah, absolutely. So, Max, <laughs> tell me, um, what, I mean, let me push you a little bit on Dostoevsky, and then I want to know how you got from Dostoevsky to the Real News Network, because it's a little <laughs> bit of a leap, not a huge leap, not as big a leap as being a biology major and then, you know, moving to Dostoevsky. But, you know, Dostoevsky isn't the only writer who gives you a rich interior world of people, right? So, I mean, not to diminish him, right, but to say that many great literary uh, figures have that gift. That's part of what makes great literature great. Tell me what in particular captured you and your imagination about 
the kind of world that Dostoevsky creates or the kind of struggles that he addresses. Is there something that you can say more about specifically? I mean, if he was that pivotal that he just moved your whole cruise ship right across the water, you were going one way and then you move this whole heavy life direction into another way. I want to hear a little bit more about about what he tapped into for you. Absolutely. No, and, and you're right. I mean, in many ways, Dostoevsky was my great my gateway drug to a whole world of literature uh, to which I think I will be an everlasting student. And I'm really, again, really grateful for my professors, my parents and everyone who put me on that path. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that in as much as Dostoevsky gave me that gift, right, people, writers like Carson McCullers and James Baldwin have given me that gift again and again. And, you know, I think that more than anything, you know, I was talking about this recently on the David Feldman show when I was trying to explain why I'm a Marxist humanist and where my Marxist humanism comes from and why I learned so much about it from authors, literary, literary authors, even those who are not, you know, by any means Marxist. And I think Dostoevsky is a perfect taste, uh, test case for that, right? Because, you know, everything that I do politically and everything I do, you know, in the world of media and the way that I try to just act in the world, right, is driven by, I think, a fundamental, um, fundamental understanding of how valuable uh, human life and dignity are, you know, what they really mean for all of us and how they guide that quest for to, to discern what it means to be human is what guides so much of our lives. Yeah. And Dostoevsky, you know, the reason his books are so big is because he doesn't just explain to you, you know, the kind of deep intellectual um, problems that he's trying to work out. He works those problems out through the kind of messy humanity of his characters. Mm. And so even I think the first 50 pages of Crime and Punishment are among the most amazing things ever written by a human being because Dostoevsky is asking you as a reader to think about the the ethical knot of committing murder against somebody but he he explains that ethical knot not by kind of uh intellectualizing it he tells it to you in the kind of internal struggle that Raskolnikov is having with his own emotions, with his own psychology, with the ways that he interprets the looks that he's getting from people on the street. That's the way that you see him, him as a human being navigating kind of this deep intellectual I question. I see. So it's a true deep walk in the shoes of. I think so. You know, again, and it, like I said, for me as a conservative who had never really pushed myself to think that hard about what is going on in other people's heads, um, you know, that was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, I'm looking at a brother right here. You know, that's you see that there, John Berger, John Berger. Uh, Platonov. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah, no, I don't know. That's another grand moment subsequent to Dostoevsky in the 20th century, but he's bringing Gogo and Dostoevsky together. Mm. It is dark and grim, but he's got some smiles down in there, though. Wow. Hopefully the takeaway here for non-literary nerds is read Dostoevsky, read Platonov, read Bulgakov, read McCullers, read Baldwin, read as much as you can. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. You know, it That's is a moment it's a moment where, you know, um, the kind of um, emphasis on technology, the emphasis on data, the emphasis on outcomes, the emphasis on, you know, capital accumulation, you know, is 
really driving people away from those kinds of textured, you know, expressions of humanity. Um, and, you know, the more we spend time not in physical community, which, you know, we were avoiding before COVID, but has only gotten more intense, the harder it is to see and to connect with each other in the ways that you're both emphasizing uh, about literature. So, you know, the defense of the humanities, you know, which shouldn't have to be an ongoing defense, but, but I think part of it is really about this, this kind of important contribution. How do we really learn to feel like we're in community with one another, that we're connected to one another, we share some kind of fundamental common fate in, in the world as, as part of the human and animal world. Um, and, uh, I th you know, the question is, how do you get people to move from that, right, to this other place? I mean, do you think how you tell the news is actually an important part of this story? Because one of the things the Real News Network does is, you know, really try to talk about stories about everyday people, to connect big political ideas to everyday people and circumstances. Is that, is that a goal that you might have to bring your literary investments into the, into the news? See, this, this is why Professor Rose is such a great host, right? She can, she can take our, yeah. our, our uh, discussion of Dostoevsky and bring it back to uh, where we need to be in, a, in such a beautiful way. I think, I think yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, and you had asked me previously, um, Dr. Rose, about how we got from like my, my love of Russian literature to where I am now. You know, I, I think I can answer your question by way of responding to that previous question. Right, because uh, it will shock no one to learn that I graduated, you know, in the depths of the Great Recession. And when you graduate into a recession with two degrees in Russian literature, uh, you're going to have a hard time finding a job. And, you know, on top of all of that, my family, who had worked their butts off their whole lives to claw their way to the middle class, lost everything in the recession, including eventually the house that I grew up in. And so in mm -hmm. this time last decade, 10 years ago to the day, I was working 12, 13 hour days as a temp worker in warehouses and factories in Southern California. I was working a lot of, you know, terrible jobs over the years. Um, you know, my, my dad was driving for Uber. My folks, we were doing everything we could to try to keep our house and try to keep ourselves together, but it just wasn't enough. And what I learned in that period when we were all so traumatized by what we had experienced and we were receding farther into ourselves and punishing ourselves as if mm. a global recession was all our own fault right we mm. were not we did not have the tools to understand what had happened to us let alone to connect it to what was happening to the millions of others around the country and around the world like you were saying dr rose to make those human connections that would bridge our suffering to that of our fellow human beings then I noticed when my dad was driving Uber that um, when he was driving people his age, uh, he would talk to them. And it was then that he would realize that these people were his age. They were going to their second or third job. These people were also immigrants uh, his age who had lost their house. It was only then in sharing those stories with one another in that shared space that my dad finally started to realize that what we had gone through was what so many others had gone through. And that really highlighted to me the power of being able to share those stories and connect with one another on that human level. And that it's, it's a necessity for building any sort of political solidarity, 
let alone kind of feeling our own place in the world as something that isn't so frightening and, and we don't feel ourselves to be completely alone. And I think that that is kind of the mission that has driven me in my media career. You know, for years I've been uh, interviewing workers on my podcast, Working People, and my dad was the first one I ever interviewed to get him to open mm -hmm. up that way. And I've been continuing that tradition. And it was when I found the real news and saw that they too were very much invested in this type of storytelling, in um, reporting and journalism that understood the value of human life and that understood the necessity of digging beneath, um, you know, the kind of half truths that we get from corporate media to find that raw beating human stuff beneath the surface and to celebrate it and to report on it and to remind people that our lives and our stories matter, not just the stories that we get in mainstream media. And so it ended up being a perfect partnership, I think. Mm, yeah. Wow, that's, yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. I mean, Trisha's point about technology and even STEM courses becoming hegemonic and predominant and, and so many uh, universities these days pushing humanities out <clears throat> that I find it very interesting that uh, one of the most profound philosophical critics of technology and techne, Martin Heidegger, who had a picture of Dostoevsky on his wall, uh, that he had Herbert Marcuse as a student and he had Hannah Arendt as a student. So even though he's a Nazi gangster in his politics, He's a philosophic genius and engaging the Western philosophical tradition and the ways in which technological conceptions of science and instrumental conceptions of reason push out any wrestling with what it means to be human, how you create the community, Sister Tricia was talking about and so forth. In your pilgrimage from conservative Catholic brother, God bless you, to Marxist humanist, God bless you. <laughs> 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 Did, 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 did Marcuse and others play a role? How did you end up there though? Because Dostoevsky can't take it. You can read the diaries and other things. He's only gonna take you so far in terms of that leftism that you got, my brother. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's it's probably, uh, I'll, pro I'll, I'll save the longer explanation for, for another time, hopefully when we could all meet in person because, you know, I, I ended up getting um, two PhDs from the University of Michigan and in comparative literature and history. And, you know, my advisor, Gareth Williams, he made me read a lot of Heidegger um, and a lot of Reiner, Reiner Sherman and, and um, a lot of continental philosophy, even though he knew that what I was interested in was studying um, media and studying left political media in 20th century Mexico. And I was reading a lot of um, Marxist humanist authors in Mexico, like Jose de Vueltas. I was looking at a lot of, you know, political figures from the 20th century left in Mexico. And, you know, while reading thinkers like Heidegger, it forced me to think differently about what media is and what purpose it serves, right? You know, as, as we all know, right? You know, media, if we go back to the Latin root of it, right? Means kind of in the middle media are the connective tissue that bring together things that are separate. And so I started thinking about the ways that media worked in politics differently, not just as vehicles to convey a political message, but actually hands that were being extended outwards 
to bring um, campesinos in, in the countryside in Mexico, uh, ciudadanos living in the city, uh, people living in the United States. It was the media that they created were ways for them to connect uh, a century ago around a shared version of truth, around a shared mission and vision of humanity, right? It wasn't just one newspaper circulating. It was a whole network of people mm. smuggling those newspapers beyond mm. the borders, um, you know, communicating with their fellow workers who couldn't read what they were reading in these newspapers like Regeneración in Mexico a century ago. Mm. And so, um, you know, again, Heidegger and others like him made me think about media not just as tools right? right but as that kind of connective tissue through which we can start to build a broader community of knowing a community of truth and even hopefully kind of a community in solidarity around the common cause of building a better world mm. Mm. that's wonderful man that's yeah. wonderful that's rich stuff that's yeah, and, really and that really connects what you're doing with Real News Network to what we're doing with this po podcast. I mean, you know, Cornell and I are interested in doing this. Well, mostly because for me, at least, it's great fun to talk to him every week. I'm so blessed. I'll tell you, my calendar could be as full as it wants. If I got Cornell on it, it's all right. You know, I'll, I'll survive it. <laughs> I'm the but, same uh, way. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. <laughs> and but, can I say it comes through? I mean, the joy that you two have <laughs> conversing with each other has been such a light in these dark times. I just really wanted to thank you both for that. Yeah, well, it was. A, I mean, I knew it was going to be a gift to me, but I'm so grateful. It's a gift to other people. We We do get really lovely feedback about, you know, because, you know, it's very, we're not, we're not pretending what we, what you see is who we definitely are, you know, even when we're not locked in our proverbial studies. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, there's definitely not, not much of, and, and that actually also speaks to your point about, you know, the connective tissue that media is supposed to be right. That, that we can, we don't need to put up the facade, the structure of, of, of creating alienation. That's actually the opposite of its purpose. Um, so tell us what's ahead for you in the Real News Network uh, and, you know, what 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 kinds of highlights we can expect from what what's going to be coming up. Sure. I mean, you know, I think that more than anything, like, you know, one of the, the highlights is this kind of, you know, uh, kind of temporary collaboration that we're doing together. It's something I'm so genuinely excited about. You know, as you mentioned, um, we have a lot of great shows at The Real News. We have The Mark Steiner Show. We have Rattling the Bars with um, longtime political prisoner and Black Panther Eddie Conway. We have The Police Accountability Report hosted by Stephen Janice and Taya Graham. We do a lot of great work that I'm very proud of at The Real News. But I think that this collaboration between us and The Tightrope I think is really elevating us to where we want to be. And I wanted to kind of, you know, explain why for a second, if I may, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, I think, I think it's generally understood for people that outlets like The Real News, you know, we emerged originally to combat, I think the corporate media's stranglehold on truth, right? You know, like there was, and we, and we see ourselves participating in a long proud tradition of independent media in this country and beyond that has fought that fight in ages past, mm. right? But I think that the struggle that we face today, all of us who are involved in media is very is quite different, right? The, the media ecosystem that we had before where the institution, the mainstream institutions 
um, of mainstream media institutions dominated, I think, as a source of publicly sanctioned truth, that ecosystem has kind of shattered. And what we've been left with is this kind of very super saturated media ecosystem where there are so many kind of voices, there's so many YouTube shows, podcasts, but there's also a lot of ways that in that kind of uh, messy ecosystem, that super saturated ecosystem, that creates a lot of its own challenges that you, you both were speaking to before, right? I, I, I would encourage people to read uh, a scholar named Jody Dean, who I'd love dearly. And I think her concept of communicative capitalism is really instructive uh, to understand what, what we're talking about here. Because if you think about it, you know, in societies where information is more centrally controlled, I think the purpose of independent media is quite different, right? It's to, it's to break out of that controlled um, ecosystem and to say the truth that kind of the official institutions will not. But in a society like ours, which is super saturated, again, with information, with voices, with shows, you know, it's so there's so much noise and we're all so right. algorithmically sorted into our own little echo chambers right. that it's almost impossible for us to cohere around a shared notion of truth. Um, and I think that that kind of constantly contributes to our inability to connect with one another and discuss the way that you all are able to do on this show. And so I think that's why collaborations like ours are so important, right? Because another aspect of Jody Dean's communicative capitalism concept that I think is really important is that the media ecosystem that we participate in today it forces us to think like capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we're talking like leftists, we, as media makers, we're still approaching what we do like capitalists right. as if we're in competition with one another, as if we have to lord over our own personal fiefdoms of right. followers and subscribers. Right. When mm -hmm. instead the battle is much bigger, as you two know, right? It's, it's to bring those communities together right. around a shared principle, around a shared conception of truth. And I, I genuinely am grateful for the work that, that you two have done and that everyone on the tightrope has done because it's clear that, that you two understand the power that your, um, that your clout, that your stature, that your intellect has in a messy ecosystem like that. People listen to you and, and, and you are lending that power to this broader struggle that brings people to your show, that now brings people to the real news, that through social media and the presence you have there puts people in their different algorithmic echo chambers yeah, connects them with each other. I think that yeah. that is part of the struggle that we are all committed to. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's that's powerful. Brother, you got that's powerful true. vision and a subtle analysis at the same time, and a, and a sparkling personality. Yeah. <laughs> you got you got it all, my brother. He's got the trifecta. <laughs> no, you ain't lying. Real news, blessed, blessed to have you though. But I, I think yeah. what you're saying is so very true. It's so very true. That you think in Dostoevsky's day, you know, the problem was how do you deal with massive censorship under a mm. czarist centered authoritarianism? Ours is we've got the monopolies in communication industry, but there's a variety, I mean, just vast numbers of decentralized units on social media and so forth. Mm. And there is a kind of uh, overlapping consensus among many of them because, you know, if Kim Kardashian is getting millions and millions, you know, and, and 
and tightrope is getting our thousands and thousands. And we appreciate it. We're on the move. We're not going to be competitive with Sister Kim or nothing. <laughs> God bless her and, and Kanye. But, uh, uh, but you say to yourself, well, it's a different terrain. Yeah. How do we have a cooperative project that allows for our different voices to be heard, but it's still over against the more hegemonic conceptions of right. ways you engage communication that's very much on the surface, stimulation, titillation, gossip, mm -hmm. banter, takedown, trashing, and so forth and so on. Right, right. And, you know, you know, there are two additional things I'd want to add to this, these fantastic points you both made. And I already wrote down Jody Dean's book. I will be checking it out. Um, you know, that this constant dispersal of media outlets that are everywhere um, do two things happen. It's not only that certain types of figures don't make it into that story, like our collaboration before last year, you know, we did Sonny Rollins together and, you know, who's talking to Sonny Rollins? Everybody should be talking to Sonny Rollins. He's Absolutely. amazing, right? Oh my God. And if, if so, anyone hasn't listened to that interview, go watch it right now. It is no, so- No, it was magnificent. <laughs> you were and then there, then, so it's both who just doesn't get attention, right? But then there's also people who have always gotten attention, get attention in a certain way. So you learn about what they know in a certain way. And what we've been about in our collaborations with you and on our own is to ask different kinds of questions, to hear the richness. So AOC, have we had a conversation nobody has had with her? Uh, Noam Chomsky, our conversation was different than what he normally says. Dr. Fauci, everybody talks to Dr. Fauci, but, but Cornell brought out all kind of you know, moral ethical questions and, 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 and religious thinking that I never hear Dr. Fauci talk about. Uh, so this kind of combination of bringing people who are normally excluded into the conversation who have so much to offer and also demanding that those who are already in the conversation be given room to talk about things in a broader way are two different kinds of intervention that I think we are committed to and, and also we, we appreciate our partnership with you for as well. I think I think that's um, so beautifully Absolutely. put and 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 Absolutely. so important, right? Because really, what it shows people, I hope it shows people, right, is that um, you know, as different as our operations may seem, right, we we are brought together by that kind of shared commitment to people, right? And and I think that um, what I've valued so much in the tightrope, um, even knowing like how you know it's hosted by these two venerable figures, that you know, there's something there that took me a while to kind of understand. And I think it, it really came down to the fact of, like you said, Dr. Rose, that, that you were asking questions of major figures like Representative Ilhan Omar, Noam Chomsky, Michael Moore, Sonny Rollins. But I felt like I was having a conversation with them because there's a real responsibility that we have as media makers to not just kind of build our own personal brands and to curate our voice and our brand of, of thinking, but to kind of ask the questions that the people who are watching us want to have answered, right? To address right. the issues that matter to people in their daily lives, the things that they think about when they're staring at the ceiling, trying to go to bed every night, when they right. can't pay rent, when they don't have health care, when right. pe working people in this country are struggling, there's a real power in seeing you know, you to ask these figures that we may have seen on CNN or NBC, but to speak to them from a voice that, you know, I recognize to speak to them 
uh, ask and ask questions about experiences mm. that I myself have had. There's a real tremendous um, power in that. And I thank you both for doing it. And again, I could not be more excited for this collaboration between the real news and the tightrope. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Oh, you We're bless us. Real news blesses us. Brother yes. Max, Dr. Alvarez. I would say professor even, but I don't want to. <laughs> Give him another job. He doesn't need another, another job. another job, though, brother. Yeah, absolutely. But you uh, are. <laughs> Well, you got so much to offer. So yes, much yeah. to offer. We're, yeah, we're really excited to work with you. And we're just thrilled. We're going to start 2021 off with uh, with some new new collaborations. And we'll see you again. And we should do another one of these check-ins. It's been really good to talk with you. Um, Please. Yeah, I would love to. Great. And I have, I have so many questions to ask you both. <laughs> All right, we'll have, a, we'll have a reverse office hours. We definitely got to do this again or make a habit of it. You know what I mean? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. And, and to everyone watching, please tune in to the tightrope, which will be running at the Real News um, for this limited collaboration. Support the tightrope, support the Real News, get involved in this collaborative effort um, because it's going to take all of us. Yes, indeed. So yes, true. indeed. So, so true. you know, uh, we'll, we'll, you see so you, much, right, we'll see you around. And as, as Cornell West likes to say, <laughs> let's stay strong in the struggle, do what we can do, stay fortified. And, <laughs> and most importantly, stay on the tightrope. All right. Good to see you, Mac. Good to see you both. <laughs>